0: Word, I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. 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 Was the word.
1: From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon.
2: Coming up on Word, we cap off National Poetry Month in the state and the region.
3: Rooster's Crow. Feathers and comb, jazzy, funky,
2: cacophonic trumpet tones. And we entertain some frank discussion in verse about what it's like to be an Asian American in the age of COVID-19.
4: Being Asian American, I picked up certain things even before February. There were people who (laughs) would avoid me if I was coughing.
2: PLOS will end on a love note from a Valley student poet.
0: If you press your hand to your heart, I'll press my hand to mine. We can both feel the rhythm of being alive, and that's all the reason I need to stay inside.
2: As we shine a virtual spotlight on poetry this month, we begin with a poem by Colleen Carnahan.
0: For neither
5: the first time nor the last, I rise up from the ash reborn within myself. My previous being all but burnt away in the inferno of crossword paths that constantly weave through one's life. Taking you in this direction or that, teaching you some lesson or a fact about life, about you. Changing everything you ever thought you knew reborn onto myself, wobbly as a newborn calf, unsteady on newfound legs, yet with an unyielding strength as the embers within me begin to glow once again. I unbend my back, unfurl my feathers, sweep away the ashes of my past, ready to take flight into my future. For I am a phoenix, a woman of beauty and grace, a woman not so easily displaced. I fly with the everlasting light that guides me through the unknown onto lives not yet lived, onto roads not yet taken. I am reawakened, the transformative fires of life allowing for growth renewed. I fly fearless with the certitude that burned though I may be repeatedly. I will see this journey through. And with that, I leave the dust of a painful past in my wake. Moving forward as the warrior woman who will not break. (sighs) Head held high, ready to meet my future, spread my wings, and
4: fly.
2: What you just heard is a poem entitled Phoenix Rising. It was performed via webcam by New York City-based actress Alexis Brivieska for the Brelby Theatre Company in Glendale. Sounds kind of confusing, right? But the stage is dark at Brelby these days due to the pandemic, of course. However, the company is using social media to keep creativity flowing with its series called socially distant artistically connected that poem was written by Valley resident Colleen Carnahan and she joined me via Skype recently I began our discussion wanting to know more about the digital project
6: the theater that posted that put out a call to artists that they know all over the country to see if anyone was interested in performing monologues and submitting monologues. So I submitted one of my poems as a monologue based around the theme of hope. And um, so they utilized my monologue. They sent it, They and they essentially casted the poem with Alexis, and she performed it, recorded it submitted it back to Browby and then Browby posted it on their YouTube page.
2: What a fascinating idea in this day and age. I just like it in general. And I love the idea that you would get actual performers because not everybody wants to read their poetry or their prose out loud. Do you have a performance background?
6: Sort of. My my background is actually much more in design and production, but I grew up in theater. My dad did a lot of community theater and dragged us around. And so I, I grew up <laughs> around a lot of performances and performers, and I've done a few performances myself.
2: So Colleen, you said that Hope was the impetus for the poem. How long ago did you actually write it?
6: This is actually one of my oldest poems. Um, I probably wrote this about 10 years ago, I would say. And it, it for me, it's about, you know, my life and overcoming all the obstacles that I have faced, you know, in the in the times that I faced, and just rising above it and coming out the other side, uh, stronger and fearless and knowing that no matter what life sends me, I can get through it.
2: Well, and without knowing the prompt and the story behind it, which you you just told us, the first word that popped into my head when I listened to the poem was perseverance. Yeah. And so that makes a lot of sense of what you were trying to get at. I also kind of dabbled around and saw some other videos. Is this the only poem that you have that's been performed through this
6: mechanism? Yeah, they just started this initiative with the whole COVID situation because um, they they obviously had to shut down, as many theaters in the area have. They're really big on staying connected, producing art, taking, you know, um, trialing times and making something out of it, as I think most artists are in a lot of ways, and so this is a pretty new initiative for them. And I just, you know, happen to submit this to, to help them out and get this going. I have submitted my work a couple of times to other artists doing podcasts and different things such as that. But I'm fairly new to getting my stuff actually out there. Um, for me, it's always just been sort of a carthotic Self, you know, journaling type thing. And it never really occurred to me that anyone would be terribly interested. But I did happen to share it with this group of uh, theater performers, and they've all loved it. And so it's kind of prompted me to start sharing more of my words because it does seem that it connects with people and that they do relate to it.
2: Well, absolutely. And this being National Poetry Month, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you and poets from all over the state and also the region. That's kind of the mission of this program, Word, is that we really try to not just focus on poetry, but to try to reach out and find folks like you from time to time who aren't necessarily doing this for a long time as a professional career but maybe it awakens something inside them that they've always had or maybe it does lead to something that they can sort of do on the side not necessarily as a full-time vocation but you know maybe something that eventually leads to a book or something like that. How how far out have you thought about the trajectory of you as a poet?
6: Funny enough, I was working towards being brave enough to perform my own stuff in front of people. And I've done a couple of like talent shows where I was pretty much the only poet but um, I I was intending on joining some of the slams that are around here and then COVID happened so um, (laughs) that kind of squashed that a little bit but this initiative that Brawlby did I thought was a good opportunity to kind of uh, go around that and with all the time that I now have I've actually been sitting down with all of my pieces and compiling them into my first collection so that's one of the silver linings of all the bad things that are occurring is there's more time and energy that I can put towards art which is my first love always
2: well that's what I'm hearing from numerous people is that whether or not they can actually get out and perform or unfortunately they can't go to bookstores and do book signings and that kind of thing
6: yeah and honestly um interestingly enough it I find that this whole experience having everything transferred to a more virtual base is really amazing. It it creates an accessibility that for me personally I I um got in a, a car accident a few years ago and so I've been physically disabled and so that's also been a huge struggle i felt i for the last 2 years i felt incredibly disconnected from the artistic community because i didn't i wasn't physically able to go right. um, so this has just been kind of an amazing connective experience in that i feel it opens up all kinds of opportunities and potential for the artistic community that we've never really been forced to explore before and now we kind of are being forced and i kind of, i personally hope a lot of it continues beyond to make the arts and make social arts more accessible to those who live like this every day.
2: Well, Colleen Carnahan, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and sharing a little bit about your life and your story and your poetry, of course. And we certainly wish you and your husband the best in your business. Thank you so much, Colleen.
6: Thank you so much for taking the time, Tom. I appreciate it.
2: Colleen Carnahan and her husband operate a small bed and breakfast in Chandler. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word.
1: KJZZ is here to keep you company during your workday, in your daytime pajamas, on the weekend, in your sweats, and everywhere in between with the KJZZ mobile app. Just download the free app to your Apple or Android device and stay connected to KJZZ every day in every fashion.
3: I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio
2: Hour, Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. P.W. Covington lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with his intrepid bulldog, Chesty. He's also a poet who's heavily influenced by Beat Generation writers and is often on the road for various appearances. Unfortunately, that's not a reality right now, as high-risk businesses across the region remain shuttered to crowds. You might remember P.W. from a previous episode back in October. We welcome him via Skype for National Poetry Month.
3: You know, this is the time of year that I, I try my best to be out about on the continent doing readings and doing workshops. And, of course, there's a always a merch table there with books and stickers and other stuff for people to buy. And um, that's, that's always supplemented my income uh, greatly this time of year so not being able to be out there is um it's a challenge it's a challenge to see how we're going to adapt and there's lots of folks that are constantly streaming stuff um I'm not a friend of video when it comes to uh, when it comes to poetry, when it comes to literary expression. I, and that's, that's why I publish books, and that's why I have bookshelves. Um, times like these are are great times to to pick those books up and and to get into them. How, well,
2: what else are we doing? You know, I think for many people, that has been sort of one plus is that they feel like there are more people as readers, but I don't know if that necessarily translates into buying power if people are actually buying more books per se. Do you have any feeling on that? I've
3: sold a few books. I, I, I've seen an uptick um, since this. Of
2: course, there's a lot of uh,
3: a lot of venues that are prioritizing other stuff, and I'm fine with that right now. Um, but uh, I, I, th- I think we're all getting the opportunity, especially as this uh, as this self-quarantine or this stay-at-home social distancing becomes um, a little bit more part of our daily lives as, as opposed to an exception. I think a lot of folks are, are returning to their bookshelves and are, um, you know, turning pages. Uh, um, everybody in the world has been doing the live from the living room thing. I may or may not do something like that myself. Um I'm trying to avoid it, Um, but I know I've picked up books that have sat on my shelf for years and uh, actually read them these last few (laughs)
2: weeks. I talked to colleagues of yours there in New Mexico, John Roach and Jules Nyquist, on previous episodes, and one of the things that they do frequently is sponsor poetry readings and they were talking about you know of course having to cancel some of their live events and then trying to get on to various social networks and things like uh, Skype which we are using right now between me and you but i've got to believe that it's just not the same i mean nothing can beat performing in front of a live studio audience if you will right well that's why i do it it's very much a transaction
3: between the folks that are there to to listen and participate in their own way and, uh, whatever's happening on stage. And it's almost indescribable if, if you, if you haven't uh, been there. Um, and, and I'm not putting anybody down. I mean, we're all right now trying to figure out ways to do what we do or as close to what we have done. um, as, as we can through through various media, and it's an awesome time for this kind of thing to happen. Um, they we didn't have social media, and we didn't have anything but a newspaper in in 1918, the last time something like this happened this, in this country, anyways. Um, so we're able to stay so much better connected now, and I, I think I think there's an energy in that. I I think we're actually coming together during this time apart.
2: Of course, a lot of people are writing about coronavirus. And this being National Poetry Month, I wonder if you've taken up that trend or have you gone in a separate direction?
3: I've tried to maintain some distance from the headlines of the day. I think for the first week, week and a half that I was here um, at the house by myself, um, I, I, I constantly had the John Hopkins screen up with the numbers, They kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and um, I'm not sure exactly when I stopped that level of focus. I think that poetry often is the first draft of history, and there's a lot of reactionary stuff being written out there, and I think that's necessary. I think that's that's how we process things. I've written a few things, but not as much as other folks are, and, and good for them.
2: Some folks have said that in times of national tragedy, and it doesn't have to be a pandemic, but a lot of people turn to poetry first. Maybe you could argue that people turn to music, but I think what they were meaning is folks who are literary-minded or people that just enjoy casual reading. And I certainly got the point of what they were trying to make. And I think it it goes back even further than that in, in times of crisis, whether that be a war or a pandemic, uh, like we're experiencing right now. It, poetry captures that spontaneous overflow of emotion as the romantics called it, right?
3: It always has. And it's interesting to me that when we look at human history, an awful lot of what we know about ancient cultures is preserved, not by their historians per se, and definitely not by their accountants, not by their legal documents, but by their poets, um, Almost everything that most of us know about the Peloponnesian War comes from Greek poets. That talent, that task of, of, of poets and poetry comes all the way. There's a great tradition of World War One poetry. You look at especially the British poetry of the time, Wilfred Owen and writers like that, up through the civil rights movement. And and yeah, I'm, I'm going to put poetry in with a lot of our, our our music, especially folk music or protest music, music that has something to say often functions very well as as poetry. I'm really digging uh, some of Dylan's new work that he's put out in the last couple of weeks and and, and kind of kept us entertained even the 17 minute long songs. Those are poems.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And who knew album oriented rock would make a comeback in 2020? <laughs> I mean, you know, what else are we doing? I can remember back in the day when we played the full length cut of Inagata de Vida on a classic rock station <laughs> that I worked at. There's a reason why they made like I think a 3-minute version of it as well for stations that weren't going to go that route. 3
3: minutes and 30 seconds, uh, man. You know,
2: how can you possibly get what you need out of that song with something that short, <laughs> right? I'm I'm going to have to find that and put that on. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean vinyl's making a comeback, so <laughs> you know, it's
3: it's if I'm not listening to my public radio station, which hey, let me just give you guys kudos across the nation. You guys are really helping uh, not just inform us and um, not just entertain us, but bring us together as community. Um, I don't own a television. I don't consume television news. Um, but public radio has done a great job, both nationally, internationally, and all the way down to our local level through this. But when I when I have the radio on, I'm listening to vinyl. I'm an analog dude in the digital world, you know.
2: <laughs> I think many of us are. And I appreciate that sentiment. As far as the service that public radio provides, and it is a true service because contrary to some popular beliefs, we're not funded completely by the government. A certain portion washes through stations from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Of course, you have corporate underwriting support, but we don't run commercials like you hear on other media. The lion's share of funding comes from individual listeners who value this public service.
3: Don't steal radio. Pay for that thing. You know, send them five bucks, send them 10 bucks, send them what you can.
2: Although you're not on the road right now, you're hunkered down like all of us, but still writing. And I understand that you have a couple of poems that are going to be in some anthologies.
3: I think I've gotten a few acceptance emails over the last few weeks. Um, I'm Pretty excited about a festival that I I, have been going to for nine, 10 years now. Rio Grande Valley International Poetry Festival in McAllen, Texas. They're including a couple of pieces of mine in an anthology that was supposed to be released at the end of the month at their festival. I think they're doing some kind of virtual event, but I won't be traveling. Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi, has included a couple of pieces of mine in their new Windward Review issue, which should be out sometime this summer as well. And... Oh, I just published a creative nonfiction piece in uh, anti heroin Chic, which is a, a, a really cool online journal. You know, these things keep rolling. We do what we do as much as we can. I'm hoping still to get out to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. They have a, an awesome creative community there. I'm hoping to get through there this uh, summer. And I still have a date on the books at the Beat Museum in San Francisco. We haven't pulled the plug on that yet, and I'm hoping that um, I can still get out to the coast yet this year. And I'd like to do something in Phoenix as well. I'd like to line something up as soon as we get the all clear.
2: Well, you mentioned San Francisco, and I'm sure that you, as well as many other folks who are listening, saw the plea for financial support from one of the most iconic bookstores in the entire nation. Of course, that's City Lights. As far as I understand, they made their goal and way past it. They were
3: That was amazing. It was know, such a, an
2: outflow of support from, from not just uh,
3: here in the U.S., but all over the world. You know, City Light Books really is the center of the universe for a lot of folks, and I would uh, probably count myself in that legion as well.
2: I wonder if you could take us out with one of the poems that's forthcoming, if that's okay and you're not violating any publishing issues, or just one that you happen to like. Sure. And
3: it will be in my new poetry collection, which we're coming to terms uh, with a publisher out of Ames, Iowa right now on that. And that's about all I can say. But the piece is called International District Morning." Rooster's crow, feathers and comb, (laughs) jazzy, funky, cacophonic. Trumpet tones. They're using runway two one this morning. From the coast they're flying in. Frontier A319s and Boeing Southwest color schemes geared down. Engines tear the air on short final. Winter morning clears customs and is ushered onto the international district. Cockle, lockle, doodly, poodly doo. Get up and put the coffee on. Let the dog out. Cold red brick floor, twenty four degrees. Stoke the fire's dregs. Pinon smoke scent occupies the city, uniting us in quiet community. Daily mass of solar resurrection dreams are left on bedsides to be forgotten. Light snow glows atop adobe walls waiting for the sun to come, streaking over eastern Crests tune in to the public radio as the poultry crow their feathered salute of centuries, daily bread, sunny eggs, oh. cackle, crackle, smackled shells, tortillas, and chile verde mixed in this quarantine morning. Yeah, so a little little something there about my neighborhood and where I live.
2: And did I happen to hear Chesty in the background there?
3: You did hear Chesty in the background. He decided right then he had to roll on the carpet in the (laughs) middle of the living room and make uh, some noises he makes. He just turned 10 years
2: old. He's been a good dog. Well, happy birthday to Chesty, the intrepid bulldog who travels with P.W. Covington, our guest here on Word. P.W., thank you so much for coming to the program once again, and best of luck.
3: Thank you, Tom, and thank KJZZ. You guys keep
2: rocking it out there in Phoenix. I'll see you soon. You can find out more about P.W. Covington and his Bulldog Chesty on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word.
1: KJZZ is the one source that connects you to the state and the world. It's your connection to fact-based reporting and analysis of all the pressing issues of the day. Join the more than 24,000 KJZZ members in supporting every story and every conversation. Listen and support at KJZZ.org.
0: Hey, it's Peter Sagel. Some people think that smart speakers are a futuristic surveillance device straight out of George Orwell, constantly monitoring you as you engage in your most private actions and conversations. Well, they are. But did you know they're also a radio? That's right. You can ask your smart speaker to play NPR to hear your local station and all your favorite NPR shows. And it will. It will also report you to the central ministry. But why not enjoy yourself while you still can? Welcome back to
2: Word. I'm Tom Maxedon. Imogen A. Rate is a poet who hosts a weekly podcast called Poets and Muses. It's been one year since we last talked, and a lot has changed. We should disclose at the outset that this discussion contains some frank descriptions not suitable for all listeners and also political opinions that are not endorsed by KJZZ News, the Division of Public Service, nor Rio Salado College, nor myself in any capacity. But that doesn't mean that we don't allow others to express their opinions. I caught up with Imogen via Skype and began our conversation by wanting to know what she's hearing from some of the many poets that she interviews for her own podcast.
4: Well, funny enough, it hasn't hit the show just yet, uh, mostly because I had some travel plans uh, in the beginning of the year, um, uh, so I had to kind of stock up on the interviews I was doing because I wasn't sure what my connections would be, how whether or not I would be able to interview, so a lot of the interviews that you're hearing are actually things that's been in the can for a bit, to borrow a film term. Um, Apart from the last one, which was the uh, current poet laureate of New Zealand, he's the first in any of the interviews that we've published so far that mentions the coronavirus by name. And I was shocked when I heard that when I was editing. I was like, oh, oh, I did not pick that up.
2: And when was that interview conducted?
4: I think it was around February, February.
2: You are also a poet, Imogen, and one of the things that we wanted to talk about was, of course, National Poetry Month, as we rounded out in this particular episode here in the month of April. How is what we are all experiencing personally maybe affecting your own writing
4: that's funny because it is definitely affecting it. Partly because I tend to write a lot in reaction to the news I pick up. I pick up the experiences I'm having, as would any writer. It's permeated, I would say, my recent writing. And I, I looking back at writing where, you know, again going back to this 24/7 news coverage of the coronavirus, when that was not even going on just yet. I realized that even my writing then has some tinge of that language in it. Like I wrote this sort of complainy poem about uh, one of the places I was visiting, (laughs) (laughs) and I realized that it had some, not naming the name of the virus, but If you read it now, you're like, were you writing about the coronavirus? And somebody could ask me that, and I would have to say consciously, no, I was not.
2: I have heard that from other people that I've talked to over the course of this month and earlier into March as well. In fact, they shared some of their work with me, and they said this was not about the coronavirus at all.
4: Yeah, definitely. You can't help it because... Even if we were not having that 24-7 coverage, bombarding our conscious and subconscious mind, we were maybe still picking it up somewhere. Um, And also, being Asian American, uh, I picked up certain things that are associated with that, like the prejudices. Uh, I mean, like even before February, there were people who would avoid me if I was coughing.
2: So... (laughs) this is when you come into contact with people. Obviously, this is before the governor shut down the state. And so this is before it was really wall to wall coverage, right? And and you're saying people were already expressing that kind of behavior. Absolutely. What other types of things have happened to either you personally, or other friends that you might have in the Asian American community here in the Phoenix metro region?
4: Um, not from directly from Asian Americans in the Phoenix metro region. I have, um, my Asian friends tend to be scattered all over the place because I'm, I'm not native to Phoenix. So most of my friends and I'm relatively new in Phoenix. So, uh, a lot of my Asian American friends, um, are all over the place. Um, I've heard those through another poet that I interviewed that her friend of her friends were forced to move into her friend's place to move in with her friend who is not asian but so twice removed because um the friends of her friends their neighbors were so prejudiced against them that they basically felt endangered that they oh wanted to move
2: wow you read about things in newspapers or hear them on the radio, but this is the first personal connection that I'm having to someone who's telling me about this. You just don't even know what to say because viruses don't distinguish between <laughs> ethnicity, right? That's, it's obvious to all of us, you would think, but it's not really, is it?
4: I think that's exactly what this pandemic is showing us. On the one hand, suddenly we all have this one reference point, this huge reference point that's overwhelming our lives. On the other hand, we see how certain groups of people, especially if they're getting not so in, not so correct information or absolutely incorrect information, might be doing. Um, And, you know, you you do see how ignorance really plays a key in that. And I don't mean ignorance just as an uneducated, but actually, um, even in the educated class, there might be something just in the background that they did not realize because prejudice works both on the conscious and the unconscious level, right? And there's so little representation of Asian Americans being Americans. It is so easy to fall back onto seeing Asians as foreigners. And so right. when, you know, the leader of the country is renaming the virus something else, uh, even against the expressed Recommendation of a World Health Organization that we as the US was the largest funder of. What happens? I mean, don't tell me nobody knew the consequences of that. And even before he did that, people in certain parties also did that. And they kept doing that. And on one of the biggest cable networks, one has the biggest reach in the country. So what is going to happen? Of course, we're going to see this backlash. Um, I mean, my experience is minimal, minimal. It's like I was describing this to a friend. I was saying it's like being hit by a feather in comparison to what she told me, in comparison to people being punched, people being beaten up, people being um, stabbed or whatever. I think one of the incredible things that the virus brings out, as in any stressor, in our lives, but this is a, more a global stressor, is to bring out the fractures, to really highlight the fractures, and we really see that.
2: Right, and you would hope that fractures would reveal light, and instead they're revealing darkness, and uh, I'm so sorry that you and others that you know personally, well, anyone uh, you know of Asian descent is having to go through this... I want to shift gears because I've talked to numerous people about the power of poetry, not only as an art form, but a connective tissue to people in times of crises. And I wonder what you think poets and poetry can teach people about what we're all experiencing right now. And I understand in that question, when I say what we're all experiencing, obviously you've illustrated that we're not all experiencing things in the same way.
4: Yeah, and honestly I understand the people feeling fear and striking out with fear. I've I think I understand at least the fear aspect of our leader's base. I understand because we all have those fears. You talked in another episode about the resurgence. Uh, Another guest has talked about how this pandemic is going to bring about a, a resurgence of poetry. And I would say that that resurgence has already been happening, has been happening since 2016. And it's because it's been a stressor. For many people, especially those people living on the margins and those people who are pushed further and further toward the margins or outside even the margins. So I think poetry, um, one of the good things, I put that... um, I'm worried about using that word, but I do think there are positives to what's happening for those, obviously, who are not dealing with its immediate and detrimental effects, is that hopefully we can address all of these fractures through literature. Yes, because literature is part of entertainment. Poetry is part of entertainment, but it's also part of arts therapy. Um, it helps us to deal better, it helps to us to relate. And I think uh, one of the things that's wonderfully attractive about the literary art, and specifically, since I'm a poet, about poetry, is that it could say horrendous things, it could bring that message to the fore, while using beautiful language, so that in a way, people are lulled into thinking, oh, I'm just enjoying art. But in the background, they're still learning something about a, a shared experience, though perhaps not exactly manifesting in the same way.
2: Very well said, Imogen. And I wondered Thank as you. we close out this interview, if you have a poem that you'd like to read, one of your own
4: Yeah, I do.
2: First of all, could you give us the title of it?
4: Sure. It's called Unvarnished.
2: And we should say that there is some frank and sexually explicit language in this poem. So if you have younger folks around listening to this, this might be a time to dismiss them from the room. Obviously, if you're listening to this in your car, perhaps you'll want to skip this piece and uh, listen to it at another time. But this is Imogen A-Rate reading Unvarnished.
4: Life's not all butterflies and daisies. A lot is morons pilfering big bucks, writing on family legacies while regular folks are told to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps though they're shredded to the breaking point with claw marks from a repeated thievery by paws in fine livery, serving gods in mirrors, meditating on self-love, while passing the good book off to undereducated masses who use it to flagellate others, never having peered through the covers or only flipped through in searches for self-serving passages preaching delayed gratification while shoving crowds aside to satisfy their own wants, dismissing real needs as desires for handouts, superimposing their corruption onto those at the brink. While shushing soothsayers who shine light on the ugliness accused of negativity and spin instead of serving up the prescribed puppies and kittens following the sugar-coated diet into the mouth of an obese nation that must see the cum shot of a hero who saves the day while the karmic surgeon is suiting up to amputate that gangrened arm now deemed so precious, though no one cared enough before to appreciate.
2: That's an incredibly powerful poem, rich parsimonial. I don't want to get too deep into unlocking meaning, but obviously this was written from a place of anger as I hear it in your particular tone.
4: Yes, yes. It's definitely one of my ranty, uh, out of anger rants.
2: (laughs) Some people tend to think of poetry as just love poems, and we remind them, or I should say you remind them in this poem that I think is perfectly titled, Unvarnished, that it's not all kittens and roses, is
6: it?
4: No, it's not. And I mean, I think something like this could be seen as a love poem as well, because it's how you define love, right? There, it's out of love that I say certain things. I'm one of those people who help people who seem to be able to be helped. So I'm saying this out of love and out of care.
2: Well said. Imogen A-Rate, I want to thank you so much for coming back to Word, and please be safe.
4: Thank you for inviting me back, and you as well.
2: You can find out more about Imogen A-Rate on our website at word.kjzz.org. Before we close out this edition of National Poetry Month, we'd like to leave you with a love note from an ASU student.
0: This is a new poem I wrote in response to the coronavirus pandemic. In these times of great uncertainty, I think we could all use a little hope. We're all in this together, and together we will prevail. This piece is titled, This Poem is for the Love. This poem is for the love. This poem is for the children whose schools have closed. The children who rely on whatever their pocket change can buy them in the cafeteria to get them through the day. This poem is for the people who live through a lifetime of war and are as afraid of going outside on this still spring night as they were back then. This poem is for every family from my city to your city, to every city neither of us have ever been to or heard of. This poem is for the mother who lost her job and has to feed three kids. This poem is for the boy who searches for smiley faces when the raindrops sticking to his windows even when the monsters in his head are trying to find their way to his eyes and he's alone and the world feels fast asleep. This poem is for the homeless, the scared, the lonely. This poem is for the dead, for dying, the hungry. This poem is for you, this poem is for me. If you press your hand to your heart, I'll press my hand to mine. We can both feel the rhythm of being alive, and that's all the reason i need to stay inside
2: thanks to asu student austin davis for that piece entitled this poem is for the love and thank you for your love of verse as we cap off national poetry month we'll be back with more episodes in may before our summer hiatus in the meantime send us a message via email we'd love to read your recommendations for future guests or even something you liked about this episode. We appreciate your support of the literary arts in Arizona and the region. And if you're not yet a member of KJZZ, there's an email link on our website. Any gift of support is sincerely appreciated. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for listening.
1: Word.
0: Word? Word! Was the word?
1: Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org.